welcome to those of you who are, are streaming online or listening on the podcast as well. Uh, we are in a series right now called The Bounce Back. And coming up, uh, off of Luke's message last week, he was talking about how stories are typically built out in three different acts and there's all this structure to it. I was thinking a lot about comeback stories, a lot about underdog stories, and, and wondering why we like those types of stories so much, right? Like every movie is kind of an underdog story. There's a comeback involved, etc. Everyone loves a good comeback story. Especially when these happen in sports. Sadly, my avalanche could not make it through the week this week. It was sad. But we do see story after story of athletes and teams battling through downfalls and injuries and coming back bigger, stronger, faster, more successful than they were before, right? The ESPY Awards on ESPN have a Comeback Player of the Year Award, awards the greatest comeback story for, for an athlete battling through adversity, injury, coming back from the depths and succeeding once again. And we get to watch these emotional ins and inspirational videos, these clips for every single one of them. Some of you might be familiar with uh, Alex Smith. He was most recently the quarterback of the Washington football team. He was awarded the NFL's Comeback Player of the Year, and he went through a pretty traumatic injury. Maybe you've, you've seen pictures of this. It looked just like a, a routine tackle in the backfield, but his leg was literally shattered. He had compound fractures in his, tib his tibia and his fibula. His leg was like held together by skin out there on the field. And he had 16 surgeries just to, just to repair his bones. He came down with this flesh-eating bacteria after one of the surgeries. He turned septic and literally almost lost his life. He then had 10 more muscle and soft tissue type operations just to kind of put his leg back together. Uh, his doctors were quoting, uh, saying they were just trying to save his leg. And anything beyond that would be a miracle. Uh, fast forward a year, he was kind of had this famous Twitter post where he was walking on crutches once again. Fast forward another year, he was activated for training camp, and just a few months later, he returned to the playing field. His coach, his coach Jay Gruden, was quoted, he's a great guy, a hard worker, one of the key leaders of this football team. These things happen in pro football, unfortunately. You just hate to see them happen to a guy like Alex, but knowing the type of guy he is, I think he'll bounce back. That was just a lucky find by me. Good, good quote there, Jay. <laughs> we, uh, we love stories like this, though, right? They're captivating. They're inspirational when someone kind of rises back from the depths to return to their one strong self against all odds. We kind of gravitate towards these types of stories. And I think we do because we want to believe that we ourselves can also bounce back. These are stories of hard work and discipline and learnings, and they help us make, that we, make us think that we can kind of do it too, right? But what if comeback stories, at least in film and sports and culture, put all of the onus on the individual to defy the odds, the specific person to bounce back? With enough effort and focus and energy, they think they can. But what happens when a good plan and lots of hard work falls short? Today we'll place ourselves in the story of a biblical comeback, one in which our main character could not possibly have come back all by himself. Focus this morning is that within the scriptures, bouncing back always begins with restoration. And we'll quickly see that, that we can't restore ourselves, but we need to be restored by Jesus. Go ahead and open up uh, your Bibles now if you'd like to, to Mark chapter 14. Uh, we're going to start with our main character's demise this morning, because that sounds fun and uplifting, right? 
Here's the fall, beginning in verse 66. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him. You also were with that Nazarene Jesus, she said, but he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and he went out into the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, this fellow is one of them. Again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. He began to call down curses and swore to them, I don't know the man that you're talking about. Immediately, the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. He broke down and he wept. Let's pray. Lord, as we open up your word today, I pray that we would find ourselves in a part of this story. That this wouldn't just be some disconnected story of someone falling a long time ago, but that we would actually see ourselves in it. And in that, Jesus, we would see how you intersect our story as well. God, many of us need to come back from something right now. We need to bounce back a little bit. And I pray that you would show us the restoration that only you can provide this morning. So speak to us. We are ready to listen. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. So you probably picked up, potentially on the person that we're going to be talking about today. Uh, Peter is the focus of our bounce back story this morning. And if you're familiar with the story, Jesus and his disciples, they had come to Jerusalem. They shared one last meal together. During this meal, Jesus predicted that one of his followers would turn him over to the authorities and betray him, that another would deny knowing him three times like we just read through. And following this meal, Jesus would be mocked, beaten, and tried before Pilate before he was killed like a murderer on a Roman cross. So who was this man, Peter, who denied knowing Jesus not once but three times during the last moments of Jesus' life? Let's take a look at a couple of key moments from his life. Peter was a Jewish fisherman. His Hebrew name was Simon, in Greek it was Simeon. And he entered the scene early in the Gospels. Uh, in the account of Matthew 4, beginning in verse 18, it says, Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee. He saw two brothers. They were Simon, his other name was Peter, and Andrew, his brother. They were putting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Jesus said to them, follow me, I will make you fish for men. And once they left, at once they left their nets, and they followed him. So Jesus called Peter, amongst some others, to follow him, to learn from him, to really apprentice under him what we call discipleship, to learn the things that he was doing and eventually do the things that he was doing. And Peter very quickly abandoned his career as a fisherman to follow this man from Nazareth. Apparently the fishing was not that good that day. This part of the story has just always been really mind-blowing to me. Like, imagine sitting at your desk, typing in numbers into rows and columns into Excel, and then some homeless guy walks in who's a good teacher and says, leave your job, come and follow me. Peter did it. He demonstrated this crazy kind of devotion right from the start. He believed in Jesus enough to have been going one direction in life and literally flip it around and go the other way to follow him. Another early encounter between Peter and Jesus, it's found in Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do, who do you people say I am? 
They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. See, the biblical precedent for bouncing back begins with seeing Jesus for who he truly is. So Peter didn't abandon his career and his livelihood simply to follow a homeless man that performed miracles and preached great messages. He truly believed that he was following the Messiah here, the chosen one, the anointed one, the one who would usher in a new period in human history to set the world back on straights, to bring justice and peace and rule forever. Peter knew who Jesus was. He didn't need more convincing. He believed that he was God. And I think this is an important question for, for us to ask ourselves as well. Who is Jesus? If he was to ask you that very same question that he just asked Peter, how would you respond? A.W. Tozer famously wrote that what comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And I love how Pastor Kelsey a few weeks back talked about the importance of understanding how God sees us. That's so important in bouncing back. But what about the flip side of that question? What comes to mind when you think about Jesus? I think that's the most important question you will answer in your life. Who do you say Jesus is? And I wonder if your bounce back, your comeback story is centered on answering that one simple question. Who do you say Jesus is? Is he a moral lawgiver? Is he just judgmental of your lifestyle? Is, is he the one that you feel like kind of zaps your fun in life? Or is he just some historical figure that we pray to sometimes? Or like Peter answered, would we answer, Jesus, you are the Messiah? Because there's life-changing truth in that statement in the beginning of your walk with him. It's foundational to understanding who Jesus is if we're truly to come back. A couple of other stories that, that shape, though, this, this, this man, Peter, continuing in Matthew 16. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth, we bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth, we loosed in heaven. It's apparent that Jesus sees something special in Peter, in his future. He refers to him for the first time here in Aramaic as Kepha, transliterated into Greek and English. It's Cephas, meaning rock, crag, or stone. The name is referenced over a hundred times in the New Testament. He played a critical role in really building the early church. So this is a big statement from Jesus. Jesus saw Peter as being the foundation, really, for this future church. Peter was Jesus' right-hand man, his bestie, his confidant. Peter was the one that would often speak on behalf of the other disciples, kind of a, he served a leadership role amongst the twelve. His name was usually mentioned first amongst them. He was in the inner circle with James and John. Peter led the early church in Jerusalem after Jesus died. And the Catholic Church considers him to be the first pope. And I'm saying all this to put into context his fall and his denial, which I think makes it that much more significant. 
Peter sounded extremely confident in Matthew 26. Then Jesus told them, This very night you will fall on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Come on, Peter. Even the rooster was on to you. In Jesus' worst moment, Peter, one of his closest friends and followers, denied even knowing him. I don't know the man that you're talking about, were the words that Peter said while Jesus was going to his death. This is the guy that the church was supposed to be built upon. This is the de facto head and lead disciple that we're talking about, a guy that left his day job to follow Jesus. And when it matters most, he falls. And when all his adrenaline is gone, Peter is surrounded by his entire social sphere in this courtyard, watching Jesus in cuffs, being mocked, soon to be worse. And Peter responds with a, I don't know him. You sure? Because I I saw you with him just a little bit earlier. No. And this is where Luke's account cuts straight to the heart. It says, the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Jesus, in chains, betrayed by everyone around him, looked straight at Peter in this moment. Can you imagine the weight the heaviness of this look, the crushing emotion that it would cause. Jesus knew everything that was going on in Peter's mind. Peter knew what was inevitable and might become of Jesus. The Greek word used here is emblepo. It is translated into English to look straight at. But Jesus used it when he told his disciples to consider the lilies of the field. It means to see with more than just your eyes. It's seeing with your mind and understanding everything happening in the moment. It took into account the history, the context, the emotion, Peter's fear. Peter deserved anger here. Disdain, condemnation, questions, every possible negative emotion that you could have about someone. But I don't think any of that was in Jesus' glance. And I think Peter realized in this moment there was nothing he could do to restore himself, to bounce back on his own, to really make it up to Jesus by himself. And I think it's this moment where we actually find ourselves in Peter's story. See, like Peter, we have a couple of questions that we have to kind of answer in this life, and we have a couple of options for how we can respond. Like Peter calling Jesus out of the boat, we have the option to follow him. Like Jesus asking Peter, who do you think I am? He's asking us the very same thing every single day. And like Peter denying Jesus, effectively sending him to the cross, our sin did the very same thing. And even though we might deserve retribution, Jesus looks at us in grace, in love, with understanding, because what Jesus was about to do in giving up of himself would be the beginning of Peter's bounce back. And it's the basis of our comeback story, too. But Peter runs, and he weeps. He's, he's full of shame, which is usually our human response to, to, to fear and when we fall as well. But Jesus didn't leave Peter here for very long. Jesus would be put to death. The tomb is then found empty. We have this inflection point in the story being the death the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. 
In the next, Jesus began to appear to people. He appeared first to Mary Magdalene, then to some disciples, to Thomas. And so we have this moment of excitement and whispering and confusion of like, what in the world is going on? And then there's this, this hope that starts to build as people are saying that they just saw him. And the angel who appeared to Mary said, don't be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place that they laid him. Go and tell the disciples and Peter. He is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Did you catch catch that one little line there? And Peter. Peter was mentioned. He was called out by name. This, this short line in context is, is so powerful because Jesus was going after him. And here's where we realize that Peter, again, could not have possibly done anything to restore himself. But this restoration, Peter's comeback story, wouldn't happen through hard work or discipline or detailed planning or trying to be a really good person or whatever. And I don't think that Peter would have showed up after everything that just happened. But he's called out by name. Jesus wanted to make sure that Peter would be there. See, when Jesus restored me, he might as well have said, and Tyler. When he restored you, he might have well have called you by name. When he restored Ike, he might as well have said, hey, and Ike, I want you to show up. See, just as my own sin made me culpable and deserving of that glance from Jesus, his grace also means that Jesus mentions you by name. When you've fallen in your worst moment, you're not uninvited by your past or your shame or your mistakes. And this is when the story gets really good. In John 21, we read, afterward, that afterward being the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus again appeared to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. And Peter shows up. And in the next verse with all the other disciples, Peter says, I'm going fishing. Commentators argue a little bit about the significance of this fishing trip. Some think that they were just trying to kill some time or make some side money. But John says they went fishing all night. And I don't care who you are, but you don't fish all night just for fun. Maybe one of you. But this is Peter that we're talking about. Remember, the angel said, and Peter, and then it mentions a few verses later that Peter said, I'm going fishing. (laughs) This isn't just a guy going out for a fishing trip. He was a career fisherman like his dad was before him, right up until that moment in which Jesus intersected his story. So Peter shows up on the scene and he's just like, hey guys, I'm just going to be over here doing what I know how to do. I'm going to go fishing. And fishing might not be our outlet for shame in our lives, but maybe we just go to work too to kind of numb it out when we feel shame. We just want to get busy and then distract ourselves and kind of bounce between busyness and distraction so that we don't have to deal with our shame and our past and our wrongdoing head on. It's easier, right? Work's not a bad thing. It's redemptive in so many ways, but maybe we get into our work to prove our worth to silence those voices in our head, to prove something against that voice voice of condemnation bringing up our past. So much easier to dive into something that we know how to do, that we can do well, than face what God really wants to do in us head on. 
And I think Peter is just feeling the same way right now. Like, I don't know how to deal with all this craziness, this chaos going on around me, this chaos that I caused. And in the same text, the other disciples tell Peter, we'll go with you. They fish all night. They catch nothing, which I think was Jesus' doing. And continuing in verse 4, early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. Again, Jesus is coming after them. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? He knew what the answer was going to be. They say no. Or maybe he could have put it another way. Hey, you disciples, you're living your life going one direction all over again. It looks like it's not working very well. Your fishing doesn't seem to be very effective, does it? Jesus then said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Now, if this sounds like a familiar miracle, you're right. Jesus did something very similar back in Luke 5. As Jesus first approached Peter for the very same time after a night of not catching any fish, he told Peter, go try another water. Peter and the disciples at the time, they listened and they caught more than they could pull in. This is years prior. This wasn't the first time that Jesus performed this miracle. He did it here after Peter's collapse. He also did it on day one for Peter, the day that he called Peter to leave his nets behind. And I wish that we could see the emotion in Peter's face in this very moment. Imagine it's like one of those movie scenes where you just see scene after scene after memory after memory flashing through someone's mind. It dawns on Peter that in his worst moment, Jesus has come after him. He's made a conscious effort to step back into his life, signifying that the relationship is still open. Here's another point of connection for you, Peter. So this all has to be rushing through Peter's mind. And here is what is so incredible to me, that in the middle of Peter's worst moment, Jesus uses the exact same miracle as he did at their very first encounter, back to the beginning. And this sends the message that this relationship is still open, that to bounce back, Peter would not be able to do it on his own, but there was a needed restoration coming from Jesus. This moment of connection was being recreated because Peter was not past the point of being restored. And the message is the same for you today as well. You might not have physically been there a couple thousand years ago to deny Jesus in his last moments, but we all have stuff. And Jesus is coming after you today as well, ready to restore you, ready to take on your guilt and your shame upon himself to draw you back in. And in this moment in John 21, John turns to Peter, to Peter specifically, and says, it is the Lord, as if to say, he made sure, Peter, that you were going to be here. Your bounce back was about to become personal. What does Peter do next? The passage says, as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, which doesn't make a lot of sense. Like he put his clothes on just to jump into the water. Maybe he should have taken them off. But Peter jumps into the water. Overcome by this moment, Peter jumps in to begin making his way back to Jesus. The others were still in the boat. They might have like rowed in even faster than Peter could get there. But Peter did not want to wait to return to his Savior. He's done fishing. He's done moving away and occupying his time and attention with distraction and work. He begins to swim back to Jesus. He threw himself into the sea. He's just this emotional wreck at this moment. 
It's not pretty. It's honest, and he doesn't want to wait. And regardless of how far you are from God, there's not always perfect words to say. It doesn't require you to clean up your act first. It just has to be an honest response. And Peter's honest return was on full display here as he jumps into the water. In verse 9, it continues, When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. I love that. Jesus, he already had fish for them. He's kind of a jokester here. But I think that means that Jesus didn't need anything that Peter or the disciples could bring and give to him themselves. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat, dragged that net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. God doesn't meet you in your moment of failure and judgment with anger. He's inviting. He's gentle. He's kind. He cooked them breakfast. You eat breakfast with people that you like, right? And when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? The third time he said to them, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, as if Peter had a leg to stand on in this moment. Do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. As we come to a close, I'll, I'll invite the worship team back up. I think Peter, or I think Jesus was walking through this moment with Peter not to rub Peter's mistakes back in his face. I think if Jesus wanted to do that, he would have been pointing backwards to shame him. But instead, he begins to look forward. He's saying, do you love me? I know that you do. So let's get going. Let's move forward with the plans that I have for you. And he begins to get at this deep wound in Peter's heart, not to hurt him, but to heal him and restore him. And when you bounce back as well, Jesus doesn't look past your wounds. He doesn't look past your shame, your hurts, but he addresses them in order to bring healing and restoration. And I don't know exactly what that looks like for you. I don't know what that thing is for you. Maybe it's something you did years ago that no one else knows about. Or maybe it's approval that you're looking for in your spouse and not getting. Maybe it's a deep trauma deep in your soul that you've carried for years. Sin of your past that is somehow still dictating your trajectory or your future. And Jesus didn't go here with Peter simply to relive the pain, but he wanted to relieve him of it. Just as he can do with you as he wants to move forward. He deals with the wound in order to move forward and restore him. What Peter did was heinous. It was wrong. But Jesus wants to move forward together. Now that Peter has been restored, Jesus stands up from breakfast and says, follow me, Peter. And in closing, I think we can look at the story sometimes or look at the terrible things that other people have done, maybe to us or just things that we've seen out there in the world and ask ourselves, how does Jesus just dismiss such terrible things, like seemingly with a wave of a hand? How could Jesus be so gracious to Peter when he denied even knowing him moments before his death? How could he dismiss such a terrible thing? You know what I'd say? Jesus didn't dismiss Peter's actions. He paid for them. That's how he could be gracious in that moment because he had paid for those actions just moments before. 
It's only the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus that are enough to restore you so that you can fully bounce back. It's the reason, it's the reason that Jesus could look at Peter and say, I know, but I know that I've come for you as well. I've forgiven you, and I'm ready to move on, Peter. And that's the same thing that he's saying to you today as well. And all it takes in response is jumping into the water in utter and brutal honesty and beginning to swim towards him. We stand with me as we pray this morning. God, I realize that we just moved very quickly, really through the life of somebody who had a story, had moments of victory in his life, being Peter, had had good things to look back to, but he also had moments in which he, he really fell. He failed. He denied knowing you, Lord. And for a moment, Lord, we, we stand before you. If you feel comfortable, you can hold out your hands, Lord. We just open up our hands bare, the things that we have done, the things that we have in our past, our shame, our guilt, our pain, our trauma. God, I pray just in brutal honesty for a moment, we put it on full display for you. And in response to my brothers and sisters, my friends, I pray that you would remind them, God, that you're coming after them, Lord. As we sail away on a ship to go fishing and distract ourselves and, and become more and more busy with one direction, Lord, you're drawing us back to you. And we don't have to bring anything to you, Lord. You already had what you needed. You were just desiring to open up the relationship once again, to reconnect with Peter. So, in this moment, Lord, I, I pray, God, that you remind everyone, you know what they've been through. You know what they've done. But even still, Lord, you desire relationship. God, I pray in this moment it would be a restoration that only comes through you by way of your spirit to bring us restoration so that we can bounce back. We love you, Lord. We're grateful. We pray these things in your name. Amen.